This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Lack of air conditioning in some of Ontario's long-term care homes has been a long-standing issue. But Premier Doug Ford says he just found out about it this past Tuesday. And that's when he promised to make air conditioning mandatory in all of Ontario's nursing homes, going so far as to say he will enact new legislation to make it happen immediately. It's one of the rare cases where opposition MPPs say they would support the government if the PCs follow through on this promise. But NDP leader Andrea Horvath also says this should not have come as a surprise to Doug Ford as she explained to Libby Snymer on Wednesday. It's troubling, though, that Mr. Ford claims that he didn't know anything about the problems with heat, um, uh, you know, in terms of uh, seniors sweat sweltering, sweltering in these long-term care homes. I mean, we've raised this, um, I, I don't know how many times over the years. I, I can remember raising it back in 2006 uh, after visiting a home in my own riding. The Liberals didn't do anything about it, and we, uh, we raised it with this Ford government two years ago. Uh, you know, when they were, you know, first uh, getting up and running as the new government and they didn't do anything about it. So for Mr. Ford to claim that he had no idea that this was the conditions uh, that were occurring in, in many of the homes in Ontario, it just, it, it's not, it doesn't make sense to me. It, it's just not credible. Just because you brought it up doesn't mean that he was paying attention back then or focused well, on it. But this, is, but this is what governments are supposed to do. They're supposed to fix the problems. You know, and Mr. Ford likes to do that. He likes to be outraged, outraged, and he likes to say he doesn't agree with this and he doesn't agree with that. But what he what he doesn't do is is actually fix the problem. No. You know, so so I'm glad that he actually recognized yesterday that uh, it's a money issue uh, because we've said for a long time we have to get the profits out of long term care and make it about providing quality care for people, uh, not about uh, turning profits for shareholders. And so, um, you know, maybe maybe we're, he's finally starting to uh, see the light when it comes to, you know, what we should be doing uh, with long-term care dollars, and that is not putting profits into people's pockets, but taking care of our loved ones uh, to the best ability that we can. The media has had a hard time unearthing the actual number of nursing homes without air conditioning. Uh, do you have any insight on that? I don't off the top of my head, uh, but I but I know it's a it's a huge issue, and certainly the older homes are are worse than the, new, the newer ones. Uh, but there aren't very many newer ones because not many have been built uh, by the Liberals over 15 years. They they didn't build very many homes at all, and of course we haven't seen very many new beds from uh, uh, from this government yet either. So, uh, but uh, you know the other thing, and we've talked about this I think in the past, is that we do have. Um, we do have an imperative to start fixing our seniors' care system. I mean, we, we have, uh, you know, we have uh, demographic pressures. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the baby boom population is, is hitting that, uh, uh, the first wave is hitting, hitting that requirement now for more supports and for better home care and, you know, more supports to stay in their homes. And, um, and we're going to need more long-term care. So we have to really get our heads around 
how we're going to uh, to deal with all of this in a way that provides the dignity and quality of life and options and supports for caregivers. I mean, there's there's a lot of work that we need to do. Uh, it's outrageous that it hasn't been done as yet, uh, but um, but I, I'm really hopeful that we can use this horrifying tragedy of, of COVID-19 and what it's done to our, our seniors in long-term care, over 1,820 uh, people's lives lost. Let's, let's use that as, a, as the inspiration to, to fix home care and long-term care and seniors' support systems, um, you know, for, every, for the future and for every generation to come. I don't believe that these big institutional buildings that pack seniors in and, um, you know, and, and don't provide it a, a real decent quality of life. And uh, I, I, I don't think that that's the way that we necessarily have to go. So I'm all for reimagining, you know, what we can do to support seniors uh, as they need more support while they age. And I think this is a, really an opportunity to rethink um, how we, you know, how we respect our seniors better, frankly, how we respect them better uh, and, and care for them better and, and give them choices and options uh, to help maintain their, uh, you know, their, their dignity and their quality of life and, and, uh, and their ability to, um, you know, to have, you know, as I said, choices that, that will help them to continue to age uh, in the way that, that they want to. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath in conversation with Libby Snymer. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We continued the discussion about the conditions in long-term care and the issue of air conditioning with three women who are involved at the ground level. Libby was joined by Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Jane Medes, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. It's really something that we've been trying to bring attention to for the government, that not only are there homes that are not air-conditioned um, at the present time, but the design standards, even if you build a new home, does not require air conditioning in the residential portion. It only requires it in the um, common areas. So, you know, it, it has to have something called air tempering. But I can tell you, I've been in those rooms, uh, in those homes, and you cannot breathe. Um, I do not know how people are living in it. And I suspect that some of them aren't. I think that, you know, the fact that we don't have air conditioning, but we're, you know, getting weeks of 30-plus, uh, temperatures, it, you know, in this day and age, it, it's just criminal that we don't have this in long-term care homes. Donna, what's your reaction to that? You know, Libby, I, I think it's, it's it's tragic what we're seeing here. It, it really has been a perfect storm, and it's and the fact that it's taken a pandemic to shine a light on the conditions and, and the state of our uh, our buildings in long-term care and where our most vulnerable people are are residing. Um, you know, some are. You know, to, to Jane's point, uh, summer comes every every year in Ontario, and and uh, I know Lisa and I have have been uh, raising the alarm around uh, what was going to happen when we a heat wave hit us, especially given that the COVID requirements and how it gets managed only magnifies the issues because air conditions air conditioner and fans can actually spread the disease. A day ago, there were a bunch of scientists who who says who say that we have overlooked the danger of airborne micro droplets, uh, and that includes ventilation, which would include air conditioning. Now, I know there are some other scientists who've kind of poo-pooed it, but but how do you even navigate this? And, and we've heard from some 
government officials who've talked about fans and said they, it's even a problem with fans. Lisa? So this is something that's new, obviously, and I think the scientific community is trying to determine what's safe and what's not safe. And around six weeks ago, I started writing the ministry and uh, public health saying we need to look into this because if we don't have an answer, we're going to, we should evacuate people out of homes because if they have COVID-19 and they're having difficulty breathing and they're in a sweltering home, I mean, no one should be in a sweltering home. That's, that's what we started off by saying. And I agree absolutely with, with Jane and Donna. But then on top of it, if they are having difficulty breathing and they're ill, they need to get out of there because I don't think there's been really any decisive uh, evidence uh, to show 100% if you can or can't use fans and window units. And why is it in 2020 that we have buildings that are not air-conditioned with some of our most vulnerable um, populations living in them? It's, it's really ageism. Everyone that I've talked to that has gotten in to see a loved one says their loved one is deteriorated. You know, there's such a, a tension here. We've got to find the balance. And I would, you know, really think that uh, it's about how we reintegrate caregivers as essential partners in care. It, it's not an if. It, it is a how. It's a real challenge. But we we have to find a way to do it. Um, it's, it's non-negotiable. Uh, keeping uh, family members out for the longer term is just not sustainable. It's not sustainable for the residents and their, and their health and their mental health, but it's not sustainable for the homes either. Uh, the, you know, we, we really have to, to look at how collectively we partner together in supporting our residents and uh, family caregivers are, are important pieces of that team. Does it work if you just leave it up to the homes, Lisa? I don't think things are being left completely up to the homes. The government has um, put out requirements for visiting, saying there needs to be at least one visit, outdoor visit, a week. But at the same time, homes have to work within the capacity and the staffing that they have. We're actually sharing with our members an example of a curtain that's been used in Europe um, where people can hug through the curtain. I mean, it sounds pretty sad, but it's better than nothing because people crave human touch and they, they haven't been hugged by their family members. So we need to come up with these these ideas to keep people safe, but to keep them loved and comforted at the same time. Lisa Levin, CEO of Advantage Ontario, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and Jane Medes at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. On Wednesday, we Canadians received the long-awaited fiscal snapshot of the country's finances. The finance minister disclosed the latest forecast for the deficit at $343 billion, $87 billion higher than the best guess by the Parliamentary Budget Officer. But Bill Morneau did not reveal much more than that. The increase in that deficit number is likely because of the amount allocated to the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. The new update sets aside $82 billion for it. But Bill Morneau did not tell us how long he intends to leave it in place, an unknown that makes it challenging for business owners to make plans. And the take-up so far has been disappointing. 245,000 applicants covering 2 million workers at a cost of $17 billion, compared with 8 million applicants at a cost of $53 billion for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. 
There was no blueprint for a recovery, as other G7 countries have mapped out. And it turns out Canada also has the highest unemployment rate in the G7. Joining Libby Snymer on Thursday with their reactions, Ted Mallett, Vice President and Chief Economist of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and Conservative finance critic Pierre Polyev. Well, the government revealed that it spent the most to achieve the least in the G7. We have the highest spending on COVID response and the worst result, in other words, the highest unemployment. Uh, There's no G7 country with unemployment as high as Canada. France, Italy, the U.S., the U.K., Japan, Germany, all had to confront the uh, coronavirus crisis, and yet they all have lower unemployment than Canada. Uh, Secondly, uh, there was no plan to fix that in this package. It was just a, a big, fat $343 $343 billion surprise. Here's your deficit, the biggest since the Second World War, and our debt is a trillion dollars. And uh, thank you very much. Our work is done here. Uh, that's all we saw yesterday. I think we understand why the employment unemployment rate would be lower in the United States, and we don't want to go there. They've obviously reopened a lot too soon. But why uh, are the European countries who have had similar responses in terms of lockdowns, why is their unemployment rate lower than ours? I think it's because in the last five years, Trudeau has been devastating our energy sector, which was 10% of our economy, one of the leading employers in our country. It employs more people than the auto sector does. Uh, And he has blocked three pipelines. He's blocked the construction of a $20 billion mine in northern Alberta and uh, has delayed the construction of a pipeline and LNG facility in the Saguenay of $14 billion. I give these as examples of how he has suppressed employment prior to the crisis. Um, The next issue is that the response programs he's designed uh, punish work. If you are on the CERB and you earn more than $1,000, Trudeau will kick you from the CERB to the curb. Uh, You know, you lose your entire benefit. So workers are justifiably concerned that if they take more than a couple of shifts a week, that they could be without any income. Uh, That's why we need a back-to-work bonus to get people off the CERB and into regular earnings. Now, let's bring in Ted Mallett. He's the Vice President and Chief Economist of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. What did you make of the fiscal snapshot? Well, the snapshot was certainly scary enough. We saw some pretty eye-popping numbers in terms of uh, what the fiscal finances look like at the moment. Uh, and also, we think it was a missed opportunity to actually fill in some detail about uh, that small business owners have been really craving for in, in terms of how they move forward with their employment plans over the next uh, little while. We, we got a hint that there's going to be some movement on the, the wage subsidy, but no details yet. And but the trouble is business owners are uh, wanting to hire more people, but they don't know if they're going to qualify for the uh, the actual subsidy. So it, it, it becomes uh, really uncertain for, for business owners to uh, to expand and very risky for them to, to, to get back into business without knowing what the ground rules are. And that's, that's a problem with it. And Ted, just a final question for you. Do you have any sense of why other countries are have a lower unemployment rate going through the same thing? 
Well, part of it is just the structure of the, uh, uh, the the benefit measures that are out there, but also differences in the way that unemployment rates are calculated. Uh, so, um, you know, there, there are big differences between the Canadian and the U.S. calculation method, and the Canada's numbers look higher just because of administrative differences in how they, they count people who are sort of in the workforce or not really in the workforce or they're temporarily out of the workforce. So it's... Um, the, the, the best advice most economists are saying is don't focus on the unemployment rate itself. Focus on the number of uh, full-time and part-time jobs that are being counted uh, every month. Ted Mallett, Vice President and Chief Economist of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and Conservative Finance Critic Pierre Poliev. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Readily available eye care is a service we've largely taken for granted. But it's now threatened because of the pandemic. Optometrists had to close their businesses during the height of the COVID-19 crisis and were limited to only seeing emergency cases. In order to do that, they had to acquire expensive and scarce personal protective equipment and make other adjustments to their spaces. The current guidelines involve strict physical distancing and infection control protocols, which means optometrists are returning to work with patient volumes reduced by 50 percent, resulting in the loss of nearly two million comprehensive eye exams over the next year. Members of the Ontario Association of Optometrists say this comes on top of chronic underfunding and threatens access for Ontarians to these essential health services. They want the provincial government to assist in covering the costs of eye exams and to allow optometrists to be more flexible with regard to their billings. Dr. Sheldon Saliba is president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. He joined Libby to discuss this important issue for Zoomers on Thursday. We have a primary optometric crisis in Ontario currently because uh, our group has been chronically underfunded for over 30 years. So we have a scenario where optometrists are are paying for half of the cost to deliver an OHIP insured service. And we used to be able to attempt to manage that in a pre-COVID environment by seeing people quicker and doing higher volumes of patients. But that's not uh, possible for us to do anymore. So optometrists are subsidizing $173 million annually at this point in time to provide OHIP insured services. OHIP insured services make up about 70% of our, uh, of our caseload. And with the amount of reductions in our schedules, uh, we're just unable to uh, continue to provide services with that level of uh, cost sharing. Uh, we're really concerned about our optometry offices not having long-term viability and we're scared that that is going to mean people's doors are going to be closing and patients are going to have even more difficulty on a permanent basis accessing primary eye care services. And what we're really concerned about is patients falling through the cracks in this environment. We're concerned about them losing vision and we're concerned about people experiencing blindness because of it. The basic elements of eye exams are covered for certain categories of patients. So uh, children are insured through OHIP until the age of 20. Uh, people between 20 and 64 who have 
certain medical conditions have OHIP coverage, and then seniors over the age of 65 have OHIP coverage. As we age, it's really important to be tested for glaucoma and macular degeneration and and all of those things. Of course. On a regular basis. I mean, that is really critical. It really is. And, you know, to provide an in-house example, I had a a senior patient who had had cataract surgery just before COVID um, shut us down, and her vision was fine. And in the month of May before we reopened, her vision started going blurry in one of her eyes. And when she came in to see me, I was looking at her retina myself, and she had early stages of dry macular degeneration, but nothing that I felt was too concerning. But I did an ultrasound on the back of her eye, and she actually had a break and had blood vessels growing through the, through the retina right below the surface of where her central vision was, and she had converted into having wet macular degeneration. Oh, no. And I know. And so she's one of these people that uh, is at risk of falling through the cracks if we're not available to provide these types of important services. And with that type of information, I was able to get her into a retinal specialist, which normally takes well over a year of their wait time. And she was receiving treatment with, uh, with injections inside of the eye within eight days. And that's an ideal case or that's an ideal way of managing that type of case. And she is going to maintain vision instead of having permanent vision loss because of it. Dr. Saliba, so what would you like to leave us with about your campaign and and just how things are now? People who value the services that we provide is critically beneficial for us to have them reach out to government. We have a very simple platform for doing it on saveicare.ca. You just have to enter your name, your email address, and uh, you can select your member of provincial parliament from a drop-down list and hit send. And uh, Premier Ford, Minister Elliott, and the person's local MTP will receive um, uh, a letter in their email inbox to support this cause. Dr. Sheldon Saliba, president of the Ontario Association of Optometrists. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Rick in Guelph phoned about choosing a long-term care home based on the air conditioning system in the facility. As I was selecting homes for my wife to go into from this booklet that, pro- that the Lynn provides, I noticed that some have air conditioning throughout the building, throughout the facility, and others only have air conditioning in the common areas. So when the government looks at all of this, they should make sure that it's not just the common areas. The AC has to go through the whole facility because, you know, it's one thing to be nice and comfortable while you have your dinner or something and then go back to a 30-degree room. No. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Debbie in Guelph about the lack of air conditioning in long-term care. 
the building I worked in was not air conditioned. They had an, uh, a window one in the uh, dining room area. And the residents perhaps didn't complain about the heat, but they also, you know, honestly didn't realize sometimes at their age or with their mental capacity just how hot it was and how dehydrated they were becoming. We needed to go around, and I mean, I was one that instigated one night, let's hand out glasses of water, and every one of those residents guzzled down the water that I handed them. But not only that, it's the staff trying to work in the facility that has no air conditioning. It was so difficult trying to care for the residents when we were ourselves were sweltering, trying to lift them, you know, care for them. It was it was unbelievably hot. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.